This past week, um, it's been an interesting week. We, we've journeyed together with David uh, Elkins and such good news. He's had, you know, a heart attack and the oxygen didn't get to his brain for an extended period of time. And, uh, and yet this week he's talking and, and uh, laughing and cracking jokes. What a miracle. But on Thursday, there wasn't a miracle. A friend of mine was talking to his wife. He's, um, he was a pastor friend of mine in, in Colorado for years. And the last 15, I think maybe 20 years, he's been shepherding pastors in Iraq and Jordan and Saudi Arabia. And I think he's got a hit. He was on the hit list in virtually every Middle East country. And he was on the phone. He was in his apartment in Iraq talking to his wife in, in Colorado Springs. And he had a heart attack and died. And... Uh, just out of nowhere. On Friday, I was down with a friend. Um, I've known him since we were kids. And I've known his parents since I was zero. And um, he, he's worked a lot in China, and, uh, and and they're not sure what happens. But he's got some. It's a neurological issue where his brain is not communicating to his spinal cord. And so it's kind of like Lou Gehrig's. He, he's gone through all the tests, and they, they virtually at this point said we we have no idea what's going on. We've ruled out MS and, you know, uh, all of these things. And yes, they're looking into the vaccine. And yes, they're looking into viruses from China because he just got back from there a couple of years ago. And as I was watching him and, and just the, the, the slurred speech and, and things, I'm aware that there is, um, much like my friend John, Dee is going to wake up and she's going to be mindful of all the things that she misses about him. It's the simple things. Like I, I wish I would have told him how much I appreciated every morning he got up and made coffee for me. I, I wish I would have told him how much I appreciated the fact that I never worried about the garbage he took it out. And sometimes I've noticed over the years that sometimes it, it's not until we miss something, it's until we lose something, that we have the deepest appreciation for it. There's a sadness to that. Maybe there's just a reality to that. That sometimes it, people in our lives, children, whatever the case may be, it, it's not until they're taken away and then we realize, oh, how much of a gift you were. Paul, as he's writing to this church, understands that principle that absence makes the heart grow fonder. And maybe one of the ways that we stir up within our heart a deeper appreciation for the resurrection. Why? Because he, he was telling them in this text, if you look at the very beginning there in verse 12 and following, some, he says, some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead. Maybe they were minimizing it or they were saying something like this. We don't really know. The reality is, yes, the body is missing, we're not sure where it is. And they were kind of entertaining this idea that maybe we can live with the teachings of Jesus, but the resurrection, ah, that's controversial, supernatural, weird, not characteristic. 
And they were actually, I think, entertaining the idea that what if we just adopt the idea that Jesus had some really good religious teaching, he's a good lifestyle, let's follow that. But you know what, do we really need the resurrection? Do we need that supernatural stuff? Do we have to defend something that seems weird to people? Do we really need to believe in it? Is it really all that important? And Paul's writing to them and said, okay, you want to get rid of the resurrection? You want to act as if it's not here? Let's play that, if you will, game. And see if absence makes no difference. Or if in fact, maybe it's essential. And his letter at this point goes to this very point. Simply, let's imagine if the resurrection never occurred. Kind of like what happens to us when something we love, we lose. It's in that moment that we begin to see how unbelievably precious they are. Paul's kind of hoping the same thing might happen. But to get there, he walks down this path and he said, let's imagine what do we lose if Jesus really didn't raise from the dead. Let's imagine for a moment that they stole his bones. Let's imagine for a moment they took his body, whisked it away, and faked a resurrection. What's at stake? And he begins with this point. He says, number one, if, the Christ, if Christ hasn't been risen, then to be honest with you, your entire faith is futile. He says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, verse 19, we're to be pitied. Pitied more than all men. Over the years, I've heard people make this statement when they're talking to a person about believing in Christ. And they will say something like this. I believe in Christ, but if I find out when I die that Christ didn't exist, I'm just dead, I've lost nothing. I've lived my life, I died like you, and it's all good. Because I lived a good life. And they will say, if you die and Christ actually is God and he did die you lose everything and they actually think that that rationale and reasoning is good Paul would say you've lost your mind if you believe in Christ and it's not real you have adopted the biggest lie in the world If you believe in Christ and he hasn't been raised from the dead, you're not to be admired, you're to be pitied. You have bought off on something. It is the most masterful delusion that has ever hit mankind if Christ hasn't been risen from the dead. It's not just futile. You're to be pitied. You're to be looked at and thought, oh my gosh, what a tragic life you've lived. If you've believed in Christ's resurrection and it actually didn't happen. A number of years ago, there was a gentleman in our church and uh, I went to visit him at the hospital. And in my conversation with him, I found out that he wasn't a believer in Christ. Uh, and we, we're, I was puzzled because he, you know, I'm not sure how he got to be a member of our church, but he was. And, um, and so we were walking through this whole process and I said, you don't believe in Jesus, not in Christ who was God who died. No, 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 pastor. I wish I did, but I don't. And I was just, honestly, I was just so puzzled by that. And I asked him, it's like, hey, why do you go to church? 
I mean, I don't, I'm happy you're there. I mean, I think sometimes you probably go to church more often than most Christians. So, so why is that? And he said to me, he said, well, you know what? When I was younger and I got married, I kind of looked at Christians and I looked at non-Christians and I liked the way Christians lived better than non-Christians. So I thought I would hang around you. I was like, wow, what a tragedy. Really, what a tragedy. Because Paul says, if indeed, let me tell you what, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ, verse 14, has not been raised, then my friend, our preaching is useless. And so is your life. So is your faith. It is not a good thing to believe in Jesus Christ, to give your life to that delusion, if indeed Christ has not been raised from the dead. You have given your life to a masterful lie. That's what Paul's point is. If you want to ask the question, does the resurrection make any difference? So let me tell you what, at the very basis of it, if you've given your life to something and it's not true, then it's a delusion. Drug companies, when they come out with their drugs, they do a lot of testing. I have a friend who's half-time professor at Harvard and half-time works in R&D for a drug company. He tells me all the time about these different tests that they do. You invent a drug and then you try it on people. And, uh, and I always tell him that I would, I would be happy to have most drugs tried on me as long as there's a lot of money. But um, they, they take this drug and they treat people. And then they have this other set of people that they give a placebo. And what they're trying to do is they're, they're going through this process asking the question is, does this drug actually make any difference? And so when they test people, one of the questions they'll ask is, did this make any difference? And a person might come in to the study and respond to them, oh, yeah, man, I'll tell you what, it has changed everything in my life. And then they find out, well, great, um, it's all in your head because you've been taking a placebo. And, and, and that's one of the ways they test this thing. Is, is it actually something that changes you or is the change merely in your head? And what Paul is trying to tell them is if Christ has not been risen, then Christians are like people who say they feel better after taking a placebo. You feel better. You talk about heaven. But if Christ isn't risen, let me tell you what, all you're doing is promulgating a masterful delusion. In other words, he says, your life is to be pitied. It's not, oh, well, I got nothing to lose. Yes, you do. You're a laughingstock. And you're a perpetrator of a lie. And Paul says, that's not a good day. Secondly, he tells them that if Christ hasn't been risen, that we would still be in our sin. Verse 17 he makes this statement as if Christ hasn't been raised, then your, fut- your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Now, you might say, well, sins is an issue Christians deal with. No, it's not. Everyone deals with sin. How do we know this? Talk to any anthropologist, any people group. When they go to that people group, any people group in the world, they have, may, may not have the gospel, they may not have the Bible, but what do they find? Guilt. In fact, if you want a simple kind of uh, discreditation of evolution on a more theological or philosophical basis, there's two things that will tell you evolution can't be possible, guilt and grace. 
Because an evolutionary model will never promote grace because if it's the survival of the weakest and you want to survive, then grace is absurd. And guilt, if it's survival of the fittest and I've simply survived, then I shouldn't feel guilt over it because I have won. But when anthropologists go, and it's around the world, it doesn't matter. It's not Christians that deal with sin. All of us deal with it. All of us have that check in our spirit, like my friend that I used to teach with years ago. His name was Larry, and he goes, Mark, when I get to heaven, uh, you know, I'm going to stand before God, and I just hope that the bad things I have done are outweighed by the good things that I've done. So you think about it for a moment, and there's a lot of people who live that way. Their entire life is trying to what? Balance the scales. They're not motivated by love. They're actually motivated by selfishness because when they stand before God, they're trying to eradicate what? The issue of guilt and sin. And Paul says, if, if all you're doing is removing the resurrection and thinking that, wow, you can go on and live your life. No, 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 no. Because if you have guilt, and we all do, and we all feel it, then the rest of our life, we're going to be simply trying to invest our time and our energy into what? Eradicating that stain. Have you ever had a stain like on your carpet or a piece of furniture and you, you just, you go down to the store and you buy every stain remover you can find and you go home and you're scrubbing away and it looks like I got it and then it dries and you come back and you're like, I hate you stain and it's still there. I mean, I, I have a piece of furniture I think I'm going to throw away. It's structurally good. It's pretty new to be honest with you. It's just stained and it drives me crazy. But the reality is a lot of you have that stain on your heart. Because maybe you don't really believe in the resurrection. Maybe you don't really believe in this whole issue of forgiveness. And if you don't, then I guarantee you, you have issues. That abortion, that divorce, that secret affair, I don't care what it is. That cooking of the books. None of us in this room get out of this thing alive. We're all sinful. We are. All of us have something in our past, and it's probably not too far back. Maybe it's yesterday. All of us have something that does what? It stains our heart, and we realize, God, I failed you again. It can be we go off on a spouse. It can be that we, we let a boss have it. We just kind of take the governor off our lips and go home and think, oh, good grief, I'm going to get fired. And it's in that moment, every religion has to deal with this question. What do you do with sin? Because we all have it. The world has it. Every people group that has ever been discovered has guilt. And by the way, every people group that they have discovered has a means of what? Rectifying that guilt. But here's what we've noticed in the anthropological world. That guilt is never cured. It's always ongoing unless there's a resurrection. Paul says if you remove the resurrection, if you take it away, then you're committing your life forever to knowingly, purposely trying to remove the stain. You know what the implication of that is? Every good deed 
is at some level not motivated out of your love for people, but out of a desire to tip the scales. Every gift given is not truly motivated from a forgiven and gracious heart, but actually a heart that is trying to appease some judge like my friend Larry, that you're going to stand before God. You want to remove the resurrection? Paul says, okay. Get ready to spend the rest of your life dealing with the stain on your heart. Fourth, he says that if Christ hasn't been risen, then we have nothing but false hope. Verse 18 makes this statement. He goes, those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they're lost. Meaning they don't have any hope. They have nothing to look forward to. They're done. When they die, that's it. They have nothing that they can count on. I was talking with a friend this past week and and he was telling me that he, we were talking about the afterlife and he said, kind of out of nowhere, I had no idea where this person came from. And he goes, well, I, I, I believe in reincarnation. I said, you do. Can you, can I just ask you a question? A simple question. Why do you believe in reincarnation? I mean, were you in a previous life a cat and you're, you're now something else or, I mean, what was it? How do you know? Did you have consciousness of your pre-existence? And when you die, how do you know what you're going to be and that you're going to continue? I mean, it's fascinating to me. And at the end of our conversation, you know what the answer was? Well, I just hope it's right. Because there's no evidence. We don't have any. And Paul's point is this. If you have no real hope, You're just fabricating false hope. And what happens with false hope? No hope is better than false hope. Why? Because hope deferred makes the heart sick. If you raise up false hope and it gets crashed, your heart is sick. I see this in Christians. One of the privileges we have as pastors, and it's an honor and a privilege to walk people through grief and difficulty, but there's, there's a tension that exists. You've probably felt the same tension we all have. When you get called up to the hospital, pastor, would you come and pray? When you get called over to a home, would you come and pray like I did on Friday? Would you come and pray? We have a neurological issue. Would you pray? One of the questions you're going to have to wrestle with in that moment is you come and they read James 5. And you anoint that person with oil. You have to ask yourself a question. Here's the question. What does it mean to pray with faith? Does it mean that I pray believing God can heal that person? Or do I pray because they've not only read James 5, but they've read James 4 about doubting. And now you come to the place where you say, is the prayer of faith that I believe God can heal that person or that God will heal that person? And every time I've been invited into the hospital or into a home and prayed, I can hear where people are struggling with that tension. Here's the challenge. I've been with many over the years that have concluded that they must come to this place. And they will tell me, Pastor, God's going to heal my son. God's going to bring back my husband. God's going to give me. 
And when they go down that path, what I've discovered over the years is sometimes God doesn't do that. And they die. Like Dee's husband this Thursday. Sometimes God doesn't heal the neurological issue. And then becomes the crash. This, the proverb says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And, and now they're to that place where they feel like God's betrayed them. And he's let them down. And it seems absurd to worship a God who can't be trusted. And it's not infrequently that they will just slip away from the church, from fellowship, and from God. Why? Because Paul says you have to have a certain hope. Now, I don't have a certain hope that God is going to heal every person that I pray for. Not for a minute. Doesn't change the fact that he commanded us to pray and anoint people with oil. But, but, but to move myself to that place where I know I can't, but what I can do is I can tell my friend who believes in reincarnation, what's the evidence you have? How do you know you're going to come back as something else? How do you know life continues? Well, I just think that's the way it's going to be. And when they turn that back, how do you believe that you're going to go to heaven? I said, well, let me tell you what. 2,000 years ago, there was a person who died and he was hanging on a cross and he died and they put him in a grave and they put a huge rock in front of that grave and three days later they came back and he was missing. It wasn't a small little thing. Kind of like, do, do you, is anyone in here think that on this Tuesday, when our former president gets indicted and, and fingerprinted and, and the mug shot, do you think anyone's going to be kind of slightly unaware that that's going to happen? That's about the idea that somebody would miss the fact that Jesus Christ lived, died, was in the grave, and his body was missing. Why do I believe that there's a heaven? It's because after Jesus didn't go in hiding, he didn't play secret, he didn't play hide and seek. He said, here I am, and 500 people had lunch with him all at the same time. They all saw him. If Christ hasn't been risen, friends, it's not just, oh, well. No, we raise people up with the cruelest hope in the world. Paul says no hope is better than false hope. Why? Because false hope leads to broken hearts. It leads to shattered faith. Finally, Paul makes this statement. He says, if Christ is not risen, if you want to entertain that idea that doesn't make any real difference, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, I mean, after all, Jesus had some good teaching, and if you follow it, it'll be a good way of life. If that's all you want to go down, then he says, there's, there's another thing I want to tell you. You're completely wasting your life. That, that's a summary of what he says in verse 19, only if, for this life. In other words, if all you do is follow Jesus' teaching in this life, that there's hope. You're not to be envied, you're to be pitied. Why? Because you've wasted your life. And everything you've given up for Christ is worthless. I think the reason why Paul said this is because to be honest with you, he had skin in the game. When Jesus came to Paul and said, hey Paul, uh, take up your cross and follow me. And Paul said, I'm in. 
I'm in. And what that meant for Paul is that five times he was going to be flogged on his back 39 times. They say, uh, I have no experience in this, but they say that 40 times if you're flogged, 40 stripes on your back, it's going to kill you. So these merciless individuals took Paul and five times striped his back with these cutting pieces of metal 39 times. Why? We don't want to kill you. We just want it nearly to kill you. Three times he was beaten and left for dead in the ditch. He was stoned, shipwrecked three times, bitten by snakes, imprisoned numerous times. And if somebody were to come up with Paul, well, Paul, you know, I'll tell you what, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, it's okay. You followed Jesus' teaching and it was a better life, right? Not at all. Paul would have been way better off to stay a Pharisee. He would have been way richer if he would have stayed a Pharisee, lived a very lucrative job and been paid huge amounts of money and treated like a king. See, Paul understands that when you take Christ's invitation seriously, take up your cross and follow me, you simply can't say, wow, I followed the teachings of Jesus. If the resurrection didn't occur, I've lived a better life. No, you haven't. And if you can actually say that, then you probably haven't taken up your cross and followed Jesus. You've probably used Jesus as a way to shield yourself from sacrifice. Because if you've ever really prayed and you've ever really forgiven and you've ever loved sacrificially and you've ever given your life away and you've ever said no to your flesh, then there's no way you can say If I follow Jesus, and in the end I find out that he's not raised from the dead, that he's not really God, then I lived a better life. Paul says, not for a million years. You're to be pitied. It's tragic. It's tragic how you've lived. If you and I live our lives and Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then our life is a lie. We have lived a delusion. All of your prayers were a farce. All of your giving was the worst financial decision that you could make. It's a waste. A pure waste of your life. See, he wants you to entertain that. You have to. You really have to take a look at that and say, wow, is... Is the resurrection essential? Is it important? But he concludes, but my friends, indeed, Christ has risen from the dead. He really did walk out of that grave. And he leads off with these three metaphors. There's three of them. And he starts off with this first fruits idea. And if you're an agriculturalist, you understand this because every person who has ever put a plow on the ground understands first fruits. 
You understand that there's something that comes up and, and you begin to harvest. And, and the scripture from Leviticus tells us that when you begin to harvest, you take that which comes first and you take it down to God and you offer it to him. Why? Because what you're saying is, God, everything that I have, including this first fruits, is from you. And I'm going to place you as a priority. I'm not going to pad my bank and if I have something left over at the end, then I'm going to honor you. No, 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 God. I'm going to give you the first fruits of all that I have trusting that as I honor you, you will bear greater fruit than ever and what Paul is saying is dear friends, Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection that when he comes to this earth and he dies and he raises again God is saying that's just the first and you're going to follow and you're going to follow and we're all going to follow why? because Christ is the first fruits and he comes up to the father and says father as you've raised me from the dead add all of the rest and then he goes to the garden where he's talking about Adam and it's interesting he says then he says about Adam in verse 22 he says for as in Adam all die so in Christ all will be made alive. What's his point? He says well back in Adam and Eve when they were living in this world they sinned. And what it did is it started this domino effect and Adam begat Cain and Abel and they sinned and Cain and Abel begat children and they sinned. And it's just this domino effect. It's a very significant thing because we're living in this world that is talking about our earth and all of the limitations of our earth and we're killing our earth. Well, the reality is we're, I got news for you. Uh, we're not killing our earth. God did. Sin did. Read Romans 8. This earth is dying. I, I don't know if it's global warming. That, that's not my issue. It's global death. And there's not a thing we can do to stop it. I'm not suggesting that you live crazy and reckless. That's not the point. The point is, when sin entered into this world, death came with it. Not only does it touch you and me, it touches the earth, Romans 8. And it says that the earth is groaning at this very time. It's going to die. And there's not a thing that we can do to stop it. Why? Because there's a domino effect with sin. And once it enters into the system, it touches everything. But Jesus, he comes. And the text says, as sin entered through one man, verse 22. So in Christ... All will be made alive. He's not arguing for universalism. That's not his point. But what he is saying is, is, as sin entered into Adam and it became a domino effect, life came through Christ and it can go down to you. The resurrection can touch you. He finishes with the last metaphor and that is a metaphor of war. And he goes on to say in verse 23, but each to his own turn, Christ the first fruits, then on, and then verse 24, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. The reason we know we're going to win at the end is because Christ rose from the dead and his victory. What are the implications? There are many. Number one, your faith has substance. It's real. It makes a difference. 
And because of your faith, you can actually pray to God and he hears you. He hears you cry out to him. He listens to you as if you're the only one speaking. It's amazing. And he inclines his ear to you because he delights in you and he loves you. And when you pray, he hears you. And when you worship, it brings delight to his heart. When we as a church were singing earlier, the father was up in heaven just clapping. I mean, we were clapping, but he's clapping the entire time because he's leaning over to his son, Jesus. And he goes, that's my kids. Listen to them. Listen to Michael play the guitar. Michael is so insanely gifted. The father just says, whoa, Michael, you're awesome. He delights in him. Because he loves to hear you. And your sins are forgiven. And my friends, some of you need to hear this. You've been trying to cleanse that spot, that stain, that sickening little stain that is just periodically comes back to you and it reminds you and you feel guilty and you, you suppress it and maybe you start drinking a little too much and maybe you eat too much and maybe you work too much and, and all of that energy is just trying to get that stupid stain out of your heart. Jesus walked out of the grave and when he did, he took your stain with him. And he said, your sins are forgiven. That which was done to you, I'm going to heal it. And you have a certain hope. Not a, I hope this is true. Not a, I think I'm going to be reincarnated. No, I know I will be raised from the dead because Christ was raised from the dead. It is the greatest event that human history is ever going to celebrate. It's the reason why we put so much energy into celebrating the resurrection. Why? Because we're hoping every year it gets deeper in your heart. And for some of you, we hope every year it becomes the first time that you believe. And because of that, the costly discipleship that Christ asks you to follow is the greatest investment of your life. I am absolutely certain that when Paul went to heaven, he didn't get into heaven and said to God, you owe me. I, I was whipped for you. I was beaten for you. You owe me. No, he, like you, he bowed at Jesus' feet and he grabbed them and he wept over him and he wept over him and he said, I'm home, I'm home, I'm home. Oh, thanks be to God for your grace, I'm home. And he realized at that moment, everything he gave up was worth it. Don't cheapen the resurrection. Don't think for a moment we don't need it because if, we, if, we, if there's no resurrection, if Christ hasn't risen from the dead, then let me tell you, he comes to this conclusion and it's, it's a good conclusion if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead. It's right there. What is it? Let's eat, drink, because tomorrow we're going to die. In, in other words, next week we're not going to have breakfast. We're going to get drunk. Make sure you hear that in the context. The resurrection is not true, dear friends. Everything we give, all of our prayers, all of our stewardship, all of our sacrifice, it's worthless. But if he's raised from the dead, then everything we give makes sense. If the resurrection is true, 
It's worth embracing. It's worth following with every ounce of our being. So let me ask you a question. It's very simple. Have you considered the resurrection? Have you considered the risen Christ? Have you come to a conclusion? It's real. I believe in it. I believe that it changes my life because it's the single gift of God's forgiveness because Christ died for our sins, was raised telling us that the Father accepted the sacrifice so that your sins are forgiven.